This message by Mike Frisby was recorded at the Relational Mission Church Planting Conference 2015 in Berkel, the Netherlands. Well, I'd also introduce myself as well. Um, I'm Mike Frisby. I've been with uh, New Frontiers uh, from the start, uh, way back in 1980. And uh, I've been uh, sort of pastor uh, in a, a town on the coast for 25 years. But when I was there, I helped plant churches in that whole area. Uh, but in the middle of the 90s, uh, about 94, around the kind of Toronto blessing time, I uh, felt God really talking to me about uh, international uh, nations and the need to reach them. And I began working with particularly Dave Devonish from that time on, uh, firstly in Russia and the Ukraine, uh, particularly uh, not only helping the leadership in those churches, but setting up Bible schools as well. Part of my background is uh, theology and, uh, and stuff, and I've been part of New Frontiers Theology Forum uh, for many years, so part of that was helping in that. And then we moved on into the Islamic world and started uh, seeing the work uh, in New Frontiers amongst the Islamic world growing. So that's my kind of background. Uh, I also work or have worked for New Frontiers on a wider scale, um, engaging with all the different mission organizations and agencies, uh, particularly in the UK and across the world. And so I've been able to kind of see what's going on on a broader picture and try to bring some of the lessons that uh, the church is learning on a wider scale uh, into what we're doing amongst our own churches. So that's my kind of background. And so I do a lot of cross-cultural kind of teaching and training. I particularly have a heart of uh, helping local churches uh, to send and support people uh, out into, uh, into the world, into the nations. And so that's where my my heart is really, and I guess that's why I'm here today. So I'm going to be doing uh, two sessions. This first session um, is really what I would tend to call more of an inspirational uh, type uh, sort of seminar than I'll do a little bit of practical detail, but it would be more, I trust, inspirational to you in whatever uh, kind of uh, church planting setting you are. And then the other seminar tomorrow will be much more practical, looking at... uh, things about how you know your calling, contextualization, some more sort of practical stuff there. So that's the kind of direction uh, we're going. But this afternoon we're going to look at um, Jesus, the model cross-cultural servant. And I've given you some notes there. Um, there are some gaps in it, so you can fill in your own notes or write all over it, whatever light you, do, you want to do. So they're not full notes, um, but I hope that they'll give you a bit of a framework so that you can follow through. And can I just say, if I'm moving too fast, don't be afraid to put up a hand and slow me down. And some people, although I'm from the UK and grew up uh, in a, just outside the London area, sometimes people say I'm South African, sometimes they say I'm Australian. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you are uh, have to decide what my accent is as we go along. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, which is a, a terrific book, you know that there are often what's called the servant songs. And uh, there are four of them, and they uh, really focus on the call and work of the Lord's servant or God's servant. They're songs or poems that describe the servant, the one that God chooses. And uh, by way of summary, we could say a lot of things about them, but uh, in all those servant songs, it speaks firstly about the servant who will bring justice to the nations. And uh, when the Bible talks about justice, it doesn't just mean sort of right and wrong and getting a just cause. It's speaking much more about what the Bible calls shalom, a total well-being, the sort of righting of all wrongs. And so the servant 
that God is going to send into the world is going to be one who actually rights all wrongs in that sense and brings the wholeness that God has always intended. Um, in 14, Isaiah 49.5, it talks about the servant leading back uh, the people of Israel uh, to God. And obviously, if you know the background to Isaiah, God's people are still going through their kind of formal religious uh, kind of life, but they're way away from God. And uh, so they're in a terrible, rebellious position. And so part of the work of the servant is to turn this rebellious people um, back to God again and walk in uh, in all that he had purposed for them. And then the last thing I just want to pick up is in 49.6 where it says that the servant will also be a light so that the other nations will come and recognise God. And obviously that ties up very much with lots of the Old Testament where God having chosen out Israel it wasn't just that they would be his special people, but that through them all the nations would come. And so this picture of the servant here, if by way of summary, will really be uh, that this servant that is coming will bring the nations under God's rule. And that is the priority of God's servant, to see all the nations brought under uh, God's rule. And I think it's really important to understand that when we're talking about church planting, because when you get into church planting, you can so often be so focused <laughs> on the church that you're planting that you forget to realise this is part of this bigger picture. And the DNA of every single local church should be the nations. And uh, for my own setting, you know, I always feel that if a church doesn't have a heart for the nations and actually is not actively engaged with the nations, I wonder whether they're a church at all. Uh, because that should be the heartbeat of every local church and so I trust that when you're looking to plant a church you're looking to plant a reproducing church uh, modification because we should all be caught up and uh, I love to encourage all churches to be thinking about right from their early stage who they're going to send out and where they're going to send them to because that's our mandate and that's what the servant here in Isaiah was all about it's all about bringing all the nations every people tribe and tongue under the government of God and of course the great thing we're looking at this afternoon is of course that Jesus himself fulfilled this role. He was God's servant that was prophesied uh, by Isaiah. And his life on earth shows us very much what it means to be a cross-cultural uh, servant. So Jesus in his coming demonstrates not only that he is the servant but he gives us a model too that we can follow in terms of how we ought to go about reaching other cultures. Uh, in 1 John 2.6, you remember that John says that uh, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And if Jesus had a concern as the servant of the Lord for all the nations, then surely we must be the same. That our following of Jesus must mean that we have concern for all nations. Peter again says, live as free persons, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil, but live as servants of God. So is Jesus is the uh, servant that Isaiah prophesied. If he is the model for us, then we ought to follow uh, in his footsteps. A friend of mine, Tony Horsfall, who's a mission leader, um, has just written a, a new book, it's been out about 18 months now, called Servant Ministry, A Portrait of Christ and a Pattern for His Followers. And uh, he actually based the book on one of the servant songs in Isaiah 42, uh, in the first uh, nine verses. And in his book, Tony defines servanthood in this way. 
The state of being a servant, the attitude of mind, disposition of heart, and daily practice of someone who serves. And I quite like that uh, definition, starting firstly with an attitude of mind. Actually, servanthood starts with our thinking. The Bible is very strong, isn't it, on the need for us to renew our minds constantly. And uh, our being a servant starts firstly with an attitude of mind. Uh, But it's also a disposition of the heart. It's uh, right at the very core of our being, there is that desire to serve and to serve others. And by saying also that it's a daily practice is a good reminder to us that uh, our attitude of servanthood has to be worked out in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. It's no use just saying, well, I've got a servant attitude if it's not being demonstrated by the life that you live. And I think at the core of servanthood are the heart attitudes of humility and obedience. And both of those things were displayed magnificently uh, by the Lord Jesus. Remember how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' example of humility and obedience was there even through the hardship and the suffering and the death uh, that he came to. So it's a great model for us uh, in that. Os Guinness, who's uh, quite a well-known Christian uh, writer and speaker, often if you read his books, he uses one phrase and it says that Jesus lived for an audience of one. And uh, I think that's a really excellent phrase because that really does kind of... uh, demonstrate what Jesus' life was all about, that he lived in total dependency on his father and looking for his, um, excuse me, his father's well done. Remember in John 5.19 he says, the son can do nothing by himself. And I think it's very important for us that when we're looking to be cross-cultural servants, that we too live for an audience of one. Uh, It's so easy to actually be comparing yourself with other people and how they're getting on with their church plants or, or that particular church life or, or even, you know, comparing our spirituality with one another. Excuse me. <coughs> but if we're going to be true cross-cultural servants, then we need to be living, uh, you know, just for God and have that in our sort of focus upon him. So we need to learn to cultivate a total dependency on Father God and recognise that all we have is a gift given from him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we have, everything that's part of our life has all come from God and therefore comparison really is silly. Everything we have uh, comes from God and that's how we should live. So humility is often expressed inwardly in a heart attitude but it has to be demonstrated outwardly and particularly in the way that we treat and relate to others. Remember how Paul says in Philippians 2 again, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better or more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think I've found that the greatest challenge in my Christian life. I've, uh, I love being in Holland because I was converted <laughs> through a Dutch evangelist when I was 10 years of age. So I love Holland. But uh, one of the most difficult things that I've found right the way through my Christian life 
is actually to put others before myself. Uh, we can be very subtle in the way that we kind of live life at times, but actually to put others, uh, you know, consider them more important is, is a real lesson that we have to have to learn. And we see that so well in the life of the Lord Jesus, constantly giving out uh, to others. Think of some of those times in the Gospels where you know, the crowds have been coming to him all day long and he keeps on healing them. You think, I'll be exhausted by then. You know, and then they go away and then they come back again the next day, they're there again and he continues to minister, always just showing that sense of love and putting others before himself and obviously putting Father's will uh, there, right at the, the, the focus of everything. Tony Horsfall says, Humility is expressed in the way we relate to others with gentleness and forbearance, treating them with dignity and equality, and recognising their intrinsic worth and value, while at the same time not feeling superior or insisting on our rights or trumpeting our own accomplishments. It enables us to put the needs of others before our own. And so Jesus being that example of humility and obedience, we need to follow in his footsteps and, and learn to do that. Now of course the key question therefore for us if we're seeking to be cross-cultural servants is how do we demonstrate that humility and obedience in a cross-cultural context. How can we get on with others who are markedly different to ourselves? And by different I mean different in personality, different in social background, uh, difference in academic ability. Uh, when I moved from the south coast to go and work in Cambridge, I, I went to my first small group meeting and as you do when you're new, you know, you get introduced and then everybody introduces themselves to you. And every person in the small group except for two were PhDs. And uh, I had no sort of exams or qualifications and I think this is crazy. Lord, why have you sent me here? And, and you know, I soon find out that, you know, an academic mindset and Cambridge, of course, is one of the top universities in, in the country. The mindset is just totally different to what I was used to growing up on a council estate in South London, you know, very sort of poor background and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and yet God calls you sometimes to get involved with people who are totally different to you. Different in race, different in colour, different in ethnicity or religion, uh, liking different views, uh, different music, arts, hobbies, sports. And of course very often when we're working into another culture, family, community structures, politics, government, they're all different to what we were uh, used to. Uh, obviously when we go into a culture, their worldview, their shared framework of ideas, uh, the way they perceive the world will be totally uh, different uh, to us. Although having said that, I need to um, remind us also that actually just moving within your own country can be crossing cultures. I remember when my wife and I, we moved from the south of England and we moved up to, to very near Manchester, kind of up north, and uh, we lived in a little village just outside of Manchester. And one of the first things we found that was, uh, well at first it was a bit, bit funny, uh, was that uh, nobody ever came and knocked on your front door or rang the doorbell. Uh, everybody came round the back. They came round to the back door and uh, they would knock and immediately step in. <laughs> and so they wouldn't wait to, you know, and this is very common. And so moving from the south where, you know, your, your, your home was your castle and, you know, you had to be let in, to suddenly finding that everybody, whoever were, even strangers, would just knock on the back door and walk straight in, was quite a culture change. Now, it's only a small thing, but actually uh, you could find just even church planting in your own nation 
uh, where you think, well, our language is the same and that kind of thing can be totally different in that way. People's basic assumptions about reality that enable them to order their lives and interpret and make sense and evaluate uh, the behaviour of others can, can be different. And I think one of the things that I've found through the years too about um, cross-cultural church planting is that increasingly these days you're finding teams getting together that are international and uh, you can find it harder to get on with members of your team than you do with the people that you've gone to reach. In fact, I've got one of my girls at home who's just gone to, uh, just gone to Cambodia and uh, she's working with the ministry there amongst street kids and uh, with prostitutes and the brothels and that sort of thing. And uh, she's just been there 10 days and I got an email yesterday from her with her prayer request after 10 days. And uh, one of them was this, I, I'm, I'm living in this lovely place and they put me to live with another team member but I just can't get on with her. <laughs> Could you pray? <laughs> and uh, that's not unusual. Very often you find that where international teams are working together, you have more rubbing up against each other you know, with you in the team than you do with the people that you're actually going to. So we have to learn how to cultivate an attitude of understanding and appreciation of others that are different to us. We have to learn to love and respect and understand the people and their culture apart, of course, from those aspects of the culture uh, that are dominated by the demonic and by Satan. And there are a number of practical things, I think, that we can do to help that. The first is to recognise the bad things in your own culture or the bad aspects of your own culture. It's so much easier when you get into a new culture to see what you consider to be the bad things in those. But what can help you to really embrace a new culture is actually to be realistic about the things that are, are not so good uh, in your own culture. I remember having a, a guy who came to study in, in Cambridge and uh, uh, he was from uh, East Asia and uh, as he had been there for a while I, I took him with me, I was going to a meeting in London and he travelled up. One of the first things he talked about was how dirty London is um, and uh, he just kind of reflected back on his own nation and then he talked very much about the way that we treat older people within the United Kingdom and uh, because back where he came from uh, older folk are very revered and honoured spoken politely to and he just couldn't get over the fact that in the United Kingdom uh, so often older people were shoved out the way in shopping and they were just treated badly and he found that was really hard and actually it is one of the changes that I've certainly seen in the United Kingdom the way that we treat our older generation and, and so that's, you know, that's something that's not good and we have to be able to recognise that and actually can learn sometimes from other cultures who are stronger on family values, stronger on their care uh, for the old. So one of the things that can help us is you know, recognise the bad things and <laughs> own up to those in your own culture. Secondly, make allowances for the privileges that you yourself have benefited from uh, but they have been denied. So it can be anything from education to healthcare, economic stability, even just having water on tap. <laughs> and it's so easy to look down on other cultures, but not to realise that so many of them haven't had the same privileges uh, that we have. And so that can help, again, cultivate this attitude of understanding and appreciation. Remember also, like so many of us, that much of our condition is due, actually, to slavery, to sin and Satan. We all have a, so a sinful nature wherever we live. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, says the scripture. And wherever we go, and so often the structures and things that are going on 
uh, within a culture are the result of man's rebellion against God and sin and we have to be able to see that. Remind ourselves too that all human beings are of equal worth before God. So much of Jesus' own teaching and also his lifestyle was that he taught us that we are to love our enemies, that we're to turn the other cheek, that we're to go the extra mile, that we're to pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. And so having that sense, also cultivating that sense that everyone is created in the image of God and even uh, you know, if they're en- our enemies, we still pray for them, it's very important. And try and accept the differences and appreciate the good things. There will be things that will be different in a culture but we need to learn to uh, accept those. I think another key is to remain teachable. It's very easy when we're church planting to kind of go in all guns blazing as if we have God's answer to everything and particularly to the people that we're going with. So there's a temptation to feel that you have all the answers and that you're going to show others you know, how you're meant to live and how God wants you to live. I think we just have to be just a little bit careful uh, about that. It's not that we throw away our convictions and the scriptures and the gospel, but it's very, very important to remain teachable, to be ready to learn and become a student, if I can put it that way, rather than a teacher. So if we're going to really serve the culture into which we're going in order to win them to Christ, I think we have to learn not to be dogmatic in our views and to be open to modify and change or correct our, our views and thinking to examine our own motives and presuppositions on issues. One of the things I think about being teachable is, is the ability to ask lots of questions. Uh, now you have to learn how to ask questions in an appropriate manner when you're in a new culture and uh, that's, that's perhaps another lesson for another time. But uh, it's important though to keep on asking. Uh, so many things to learn when you enter a new culture and if you're not willing to ask questions you're, you're never going to learn and it's often an ongoing process. A friend of mine who's lived in France now as a missionary for many, many years, and uh, he, he still says to me, I'm still learning, I'm still learning. Particularly things with uh, like language, with the nuances and the jokes and those kind of things. He's still learning those ways, even though he's, he's lived there and worked there for many, many years. So keeping that heart of being uh, teachable is very, very important and being adaptable and flexible to ch- changing circumstances. And above all, I think one of the big questions is to keep asking God, Lord, what are you doing in this context, in this new culture? Because this is not your mission or my mission. This is God's mission. And uh, when you move into a new culture, you'll find that God's already at work and sometimes he's been at work for a long time. And so going in with that heart that keeps on saying to the Lord, Lord, what are you doing in this situation and how can I partner with you? Can I say too, it's also good to learn from other members of the wider body of Christ. Uh, It is God's mission and and he has been working but he has very often other servants employed. Uh, As we so often say, you know, New Frontiers is not the be all and end all of things, no, it's a relational mission, right? There's lots of other parts of the body of Christ and so to actually learn from others, particularly if you're moving into a new session, uh, a, a new culture is very, very important. In uh, Matthew 4.19, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. And uh, one of the things that you can, I did a little bit of fishing when I was younger, but one of the things you find about seasoned fishermen is that they know things like what bait to use with these fish, uh, how you set the lure, whether you set the net deep or, or shallow in the water, 
what time of day is the best day to fish. Do you fish near the shore or do you fish out in uh, kind of deep water? Uh, all those kind of things. And if you, if you want to learn how to fish properly and catch fish, it's very good to talk actually to a seasoned fisherman. Uh, so why are we so foolish to think that we shouldn't talk to others in the body of Christ who have actually been fishing, <laughs> maybe in that situation or in that country or that area, uh, for a long time? Very foolish if we don't do that. So it's good to ask others you know, what lessons they can share, things they've learned, uh, ideas that have worked for them, what innovative approaches have been tried, which have succeeded or, or failed, what ways do they see God at work among the particular people group uh, or culture that you're going to. Really important um, to be able to do that. You probably know if you've had any kind of experience that uh, when you go to cross a culture, um, there's what we tend to call the honeymoon period, which is about 18 months uh, or so. That's just an average. But uh, in the early time, very often when you go into a new culture, everything, of course, is new and intriguing and interesting. But eventually, after a while, the kind of novelty uh, wears off. And uh, sometimes in those early days, you get the phrase, well, everything, you know, is wonderful. But when culture shock sets in, it's probably best described in the phrase, everything's awful, I want to go home. And that's not unusual for people to go through that kind of uh, phase, that in the early days everything's exciting, it's new, it's interesting, these are interesting. But then after you've lived there for a while, you start to find the things that really irritate and uh, you know, get on your nerves. I, I can remember one of my friends who, uh, again, were just doing the simple thing of just having to update their driving licence and it took a whole day to do uh, in the country where they were. You know, going from one, one office to another office, one bit of paper, now you need another bit of paper and just little things begin to irritate uh, on, on those things. So it's very important that we understand that that there are those, yeah, this is great, we're off, we're going, we're engaging and these things are new and oh, we've met this person and oh, this is really great. But eventually there'll be things that will come in that will make say, oh, did we really do the right thing, you know, sort of coming here and being in this uh, kind of uh, setting. So five wrong attitudes that can make it hard um, to appreciate a new culture. The first, of course, is pride. And by that I mean uh, an unwillingness to be helped or corrected or to learn fresh perspectives on life, never asking other people questions, or failing to diligently observe what's going on around you. And of course, lack of correction probably means that you'll go on making the same mistakes. And Proverbs says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, and pride only breeds quarrels. So we must be careful uh, as we move in that we do have a teachable spirit and that uh, we are open to being helped and corrected. Superiority is the second one, which is closely linked with pride, but by superiority I mean only focusing on the good points of our home culture and the bad points of the host culture that we're going to. And you need to watch that, that you don't keep on saying, well, this is better back here, it's much better at home, I can't wait to get home again, you know, a great visit in six months or a year, can't wait to get back there. And, and picking out the things that you feel are wrong with the host culture. Also in the sense of considering that our way of doing things must always be the best way. Or some might even want to say the right way. You've just got to be careful of that kind of attitude uh, when you're going because sometimes you can be really surprised, um, really learn uh, things from that, that culture. It's important of course to hold to biblical principles 
but application or practice needs cultural definition. Uh, something I'll talk about uh, tomorrow about contextualization. You have your biblical principle, but it then has to be worked out uh, in the setting where, where you are. And so one of the things that I've really enjoyed um, working internationally is dancing internationally. And uh, it's just amazing going to different churches in different countries, uh, how they use dance. So you get the old Western or UK, you know, what I call, you know, kind of the hop step, you know, kind of, kind of stuff. And, uh, and then when I'm in the Ukraine, um, in the Ukraine churches, they often all dance together. And it's a fabulous experience to have all the church, you know, dancing around together and then back the other way, you know. It's just, it's just great dancing as a corporate body together. And then you get down to South Africa and, you know, we love the old, you know, um, you know, the townships and so forth. It's great. See, so, you know, scripture says, you know, we should dance to the Lord, but it doesn't tell you how, does it? And, uh, and so we need to be careful about that, that you, we don't feel our way is, you know, the kind of best way, the only way to do it. We, we must contextualize the whole thing and allow people to actually express their worship and so forth. Obtuseness, which is a funny word, but, uh, really what I mean there is being slow to perceive or slow on the uptake because we don't take the time or trouble to think things through deeply enough in great detail. I think when you move into an old culture, you have to think very carefully and very hard about what's happening and how you can communicate and what you are communicating uh, to other people. So sometimes you can assume a lifestyle when you move into a new culture without any thought as to how your behaviour may be perceived by those who are watching you uh, from the culture. Now places like, um, I was going to say like Africa, probably a a little bit more... um, you can see it a bit more clearly. But I would say things like, um, in some cultures, you know, friendship is not kept at a superficial level. Okay, friendship is often at a very deep level where people share on a real heart uh, kind of basis, heart to heart. And if you come from a culture, uh, God, watch out for the UK guys here, <laughs> if you come from a culture like the UK, you know, sometimes you can, you can get relationships or friendships that are really are just on a superficial level. And if you don't realise that, when you get into your new culture, again, you can begin to make your friendships on a superficial level. And so what that says to the people there is, well, I don't know if this person would come through for me when I'm in trouble. Because they never open up their heart to me, they never really tell me what's the real things that's going on. And so I don't know whether I can trust them. And, and so you have to be aware of that. Well, if you're in Africa and if you're so used to being back here in a kind of Western situation, when you, when you, you know, nighttime comes, you, you close the curtains, you shut the doors. Well, if you do that in Africa, the Africans will say, well, what are you hiding? Because nobody in Africa, you know, closes, closes the windows, you know, or shuts the door. They leave them open at night. And so if you just, you know, well, you know, we want some privacy, you know, you're sending out the wrong message. Uh, another one which I've seen even in Russia is that, um, uh, one pastor that I know in Russia and he has the only car in his village and so he, he, he takes people everywhere and uh, so, you know, to the doctors, to the next town, you know, it, it, his car's always, you know, been... Uh, you know, and you see, if you went to Africa again and you were in a car and you just drove on your own, that would be absolutely terrible 
You cannot drive a car in Africa in some areas, in the village areas, on your own. You must have other people. In fact, actually, you should pick up everyone you see on your way on the journey. Do you understand? And so you might, you know, well, I like this. This is, you know, this is a time for me just for a little break, a little bit on my own, driving along. You've got to realise that those kind of signals, you see, can, can put people off. And, uh, and we don't naturally think about this because we don't think deeply enough. If we're asking questions and we're really engaging, we'll learn some of those things. And it's, that's why it's so important to be talking to local people and be able to kind of really have contact with them. Keeping your area or your home private off limits. So, <laughs> one friend, yeah, they go back to this situation, you know, when, when they have visitors that came in, uh, they, they would come in the door and then you would normally, of course, show them into the lounge and would you like to sit down and have a drink and, and they start to wander around the house and they go into your bedroom and they look at what you've got on the bedside table and all this sort of thing and eventually they get back, you know, and come to the lounge. Well, if you're not used to that, you know, you can really be uppity about it. I wonder what are they doing? Um, so, so, but you get the, getting the point, you know, it's so important, you know, that we, we're aware of that and we think things through and uh, try and be aware of how people are seeing us is very important. And then prejudice by that, I mean the tendency to jump to quick conclusions and to make generalisations, to lump everybody together instead of treating them as individuals. Um, I know it's one or two of working uh, kind of with Islamic people and if you've been working with Islamic people for any length of time, you'll know that all Muslims are not the same. And there's lots of different teachings within Islam and Muslim, many Muslims as individuals have many different kind of beliefs and uh, and things, and it's easy just to talk them Muslims. <laughs> and we know as Christians, they're not just Christians, are they? You know, all these different denominations and groups and things. And it's very important that when we go to people, that we treat them as an individual. And just because we're in a country that might be Islamic, doesn't mean that they will all believe the same. We've got to treat them. And sometimes we find people are really hungry for God and. Uh, really, um, there was a, um, I can't say it here because <laughs> back in the UK, one of the BB, uh, one of the channels in the UK, just this last uh, just this last week, they had a program of four people that were going on the Hajj to Mecca, and you know all the, all the things that's happened in Mecca recently. Um, I didn't see the program; my wife saw it, but she said there was one young guy on that, and she said it was just absolutely amazing to see his hunger for God, and his hunger to be righteous, and his hunger to be put right with God. And uh, she said, you know, it really made her cry, you know, to see the hunger in this guy. And you think this is a Muslim and he's going to Mecca and he thinks this is going to do it. And there's this terrific hunger within his heart. And there are lots of people like that. And it's easy to write people off and, and put them just in that. Yeah, you think of Paul in Titus 1.12 where you remember he quotes from one of the local poets, all Cretans are liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. <laughs> well, I'm sure there were one or two who weren't. But, you know, it's a generalisation, isn't it? And we just need to be careful that we don't have prejudice in, in that way, and uh, which often is built out of our own cultural worldview. One of the things that I, I loved growing up in South London was that my father, during the Second World War, um, he actually fought in Africa and was in Africa for a long time. And he got to love, my father wasn't a, a Christian, but he, he got to love uh, you know, the, the black Nigerians. And so when I was growing up as a boy, there was a lot of um, racial prejudice in the area in which I lived, but I never grew up like that because my father taught me to love all people. And, and that's so, so important. But sometimes our worldview and what we grow up with makes us prejudiced and we're not always aware of that, so we have to be careful. 
Now again, the host culture that we're going to also has its own prejudices and sometimes we could probably see them uh, much easier. Although I would say reading the history of people um, is very, very important. I know I was really taken aback when I I met an Islamic guy who was a Kurd and uh, his whole, um, for generations back, his whole uh, line had all been imams uh, in the Muslim faith and uh, he got saved wonderfully saved, he lives in Turkey now and uh, he's great, he's already a church leader and so forth, he's really grown so well. But if I talk to him about the Crusades, it's like lighting the touch paper <laughs> and you think, oh come on, you know, Crusades are way back there, you know, and it wasn't us anyway, you know, <laughs> it was all in back there. But it's still deep in his psyche, uh, you know, as, as being a Kurd and, and sometimes that's there and we have to recognise that. Um, that that kind of prejudice there. And so sometimes I find, again, I encourage people that are going to different cultures, why don't you read about the history uh, of the people? See, see the things that have affected them, shaped them, made them. Those things can really help us when we get down to actually sharing uh, the gospel with them. And then ignorance is the last one. Continuing to act or behave in ways that are rude or offensive or patronising, insulting to others, not taking the trouble to find out what has caused them offence. I've even heard this from some people. Well, I'm sorry if what I say or do offends them, but that's their problem, not mine. If they can't accept me as I am, warts and all, that's down to them. Well, it's not down to them. If we're going to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, we have to deal with those things. Now, I would summarise all those kind of attitudes as being attitudes of being passive and lazy and defensive uh, in our approach. Things that actually allow us to remain what I would call in our comfort zone. Uh, whereas I think what the Lord is looking for from us is that we are proactive, inquiring, have an open approach that allows us to fully engage with that new culture. So if you want to uh, flip the coin and uh, just come to the opposite of all those things, you could say, here are five attitudes, therefore, that will make it easier for you uh, to appreciate the new culture that you're, you're part of. The first is humility being open and teachable, willing to be corrected, having a right view of ourselves so that we are slow to take offence. Remember how in Romans 12, 13, Paul says we should look at ourselves with sober judgement and as we saw earlier, what do we have that we haven't been given by God? And knowing that we have uh, nothing uh, to prove. And I think one of the great things is being able to laugh at yourself. And uh, it's, it's so important that you're able to do that. And you find people accept you so much more when you're able to laugh at your mistakes and laugh at yourself. They accept you much more. And one of the keys in that is language learning. If you can't laugh at yourself in language learning, then uh, you know, you're, you're really in a bad way. <laughs> and the great thing about language learning actually is children because the children love to tell you when, when you're young, you know, when you've said something wrong, when you've, you're trying to say this and you've actually said that. And uh, you know, it's, uh, it can be quite interesting in that way. So you've got to have that sense of humour where you can laugh at yourself. Um, secondly, respect. Remembering that we all have equal worth before God valuing, as we said, each individual, man, woman or child, rich or poor, and demonstrating appropriate cultural appreciation, compassion and sensitivity, and being deliberate and intentional in looking for the good in the culture. Friendship, aiming at heart communication, 
uh, authentic disclosure. You've got that in John 15, 15. I love that bit where Jesus says, uh, I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. Why? Because everything the Father has shown me, I've now given to you. I've shared with you. There's that heart, authentic uh, kind of relationship. We need to learn to cultivate that. Being a helper, a sympathizer, a listening ear. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Very important to have that listening ear. Um, I once did a survey of people that had got saved um, out of different cultures in the UK and uh, I quizzed them uh, about what had made the real difference uh, to their coming to faith. And uh, it wasn't great Bible studies and great theology and all this sort of thing. Uh, So many of them said it was because when I first come to this country, you listened to me. Nobody else listened to me, but you befriended me and you listened to me. And uh, it's a really important thing, uh, just being open to people, showing that that true friendship, being warm and affectionate, uh, making love tangible uh, by acts of kindness. Another interesting story from Turkey was um, actually this same boy. (laughs) He was a Kurdish convert. Um, But he told me how that... uh, there was an American missionary in the town where, where he was and he got to know this missionary and the missionary said, why, why don't you come round uh, for, for a meal? It'd be really nice, nice to see you. So he was still quite a young Christian. Went round and had a meal with this guy and unfortunately the, the man's wife was actually ill in bed and so he, uh, he said, I'm so sorry, you know, my wife's, wife's in bed. I've only got soup and a roll. Is, is that okay? <laughs> so, being very polite, my friend said, yes, that, that's fine. And so he had that. And uh, they talked and then he went away and then he got another invite. And they went back and this time, the wife was okay. And so I thought, oh, this will be a good night tonight. And again, it was a bowl of soup and a roll of bread. And now, if you know anything about Turkey, they love their breads and they love it, love the spread. And actually, it's part of their showing that they value you and it's part of their hospitality. And uh, the American missionary said to him, we're going home. He said, oh, why are you going home? He said, well, we've been here, you know, almost two, three years now and we've seen no real contacts and not really made friends with people. <laughs> and my friend had to say, well, I know why. <laughs> uh, because it, it, it missed out on the, you know, just the very basic of showing hospitality and friendship. He just missed out on that level. So people weren't ready to receive what he had to say because on a basic level, he wasn't showing friendship and hospitality. So we have to be careful uh, about that. So friendship's very important doing unto others as we'd have them do to us. And then forbearance, making allowances, appreciating, as we've said, our own advantages over their disadvantages, being tolerant and patient, knowing that people matter more than things. Isn't that true? People matter more than things. And in that sort of thing, uh, I've been really helped, again, by some cultures, of uh, cultures that know that event is uh, more important than time. Uh, some of the Africans say, well, you people in the West, you have the watches, we Africans have the time. And what they mean by that is that no relationship to them is more important than time. And so we've had friends, you know, who went to a wedding and uh, they, got to, they got to the town at, at the time that the wedding was due and uh, there was nobody in the church and there was nobody outside the church and they thought, what, what have we done? You know, and uh, 
and uh, there was, you know, it just wasn't over there. And they eventually found someone and said, is, is this the time that the wedding I- is on? And they said, oh yes, that, that's the time. But they said, no, no one's here. No, no, the wedding started. And then, because the wedding starts, you know, when they start getting dressed. And, uh, and so, so they said, you know, well, when, does they, you know, when do they actually get to the church? All sometime. <laughs> and so they just had to hang around because the event is more important than the time it actually takes place. And so we have to be aware of those kind of things and, and again, show forbearance sometimes because we're just not used to that. But that's the way it might go. Understanding, cultivating the attitude of a child or a student, finding suitable people to ask questions of, to ask in the right way. And the golden rule really, I think, in moving into a new culture is observe, observe, observe. Study your community well, its social groups, its lifestyle, its values. Ask people for their life stories. So much that you can learn uh, from people, from their their life stories. And uh, recognise that your own culture can appear odd to people. I don't know if you've ever been to China. We've got Rob here from China at the moment. But um, one of the things that the Chinese do is that when they clear their nose, they clear it in the street usually, they just cover one nostril and they blow out, um, excuse me, you know, they <laughs> let's try to get my hanky out <laughs> for the illustration. <laughs> Are we there? Oh yeah, we seem to be going again, that's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah but you, you British, you know, you've blown your hanky and then you wrap it all up and you stick it in your pocket. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's just different, isn't it, you know, in that, that way that you have to... Uh, have to understand. So forbearance sometimes is very needed when you're trying to, to cross things in that way. So it says life stories. Um, just the last, last thing and then we're, we're going to get back to looking at, at Jesus as, as a model for us. But I don't know how many of you ever saw the film um, Cry Freedom. Have you ever seen that film? It's a great film if you get around. Or one or two, so perhaps that's older one slightly. But in Cry, Cry Freedom uh, is the story of Steve Biko. Um, he was the black activist and uh, he has a, he builds a relationship um, with D- uh, Donald Woods who's a, a newspaper proprietor and, and editor and uh, <laughs> during the apartheid times and sadly eventually Steve is killed uh, very brutally by the security forces uh, when he's in prison he's beaten to death in a prison cell and there's a, a very moving part in the film uh, where after his death it's, it's time for his funeral and Donald Woods actually comes up to Steve's wife and, and he asks her whether he as a white person uh, could come to the funeral because there's going to be a huge funeral with all the townships, people and that sort of thing. And she turns and she looks him square in the face and she says, Donald, of course you can come. You are one of us. You are family. It's a really moving part of, of the film. And to me that seems what we're after when we're talking about being cross-cultural servants, that there comes that point where those that we are working with accept us. I was interested in really uh, listening to Robert at lunchtime. Uh, he was saying, you know, that now in China, the people say to him, Rob, you're white on the outside, but you're yola inside. <laughs> That's what they say to him. Isn't that a great testimony? You know, you're white on the outside, but you're yellow inside, which means yeah, you're just like one of us. And isn't that true about the Lord when you think about the Lord? He was God, come in the flesh. But he's so identified with us and people could so accept him. And that's what we must be asking the Lord for with us as we go into these cross-cultural situations to serve and to bring the gospel to people. We want to get to that point where they're able to say that 
um, to us. Really, really important. Okay, let's, uh, how are we doing for time? Oh yeah, I think we're just about to get there and <laughs> leave time for one or two questions. Let's just turn then to Jesus as our model. Uh, Jesus we so often call uh, the servant king. It's obvious that when he came into the world, he identified with us, he became one of us and he shared our whole human experience. But uh, I just want to remind you in this last section, Willie, and give you some insights and encouragements uh, from the life of Jesus and his ministry. And I'm very grateful to a guy called Paul Woods uh, who teaches cross-cultural studies at Singapore Bible College uh, for sparking one or two of these um, things together. I think when we look at the life of Jesus, we need to realise that there are some things that we can hope to adopt and imitate, but there are other things that are impossible actually for us to attempt to copy because Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. There's only one Jesus. And so we do have to be careful when we look at his life to realise that he was both fully human and fully divine. And sometimes it's not easy to assess how much of his ability to connect, as it were, with humanity uh, and absorb culture and language came out of his humanity or how much was actually from that divine side of his life. But I do believe we can glean some broad principles uh, that can help us. So not setting rigid rules, but some principles that we can really learn from the Lord. In John 1.14, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the message version puts it, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. And you probably know that that word dwell means to pitch your tent or to encamp or to tabernacle. Jesus moved into the neighbourhood. He moved in to live amongst the people. So the first thing I think we can learn from Jesus about being a cross-cultural servant is that he made a definite decision to live amongst the people he sought to reach. And I think that needs to be the same for us. You have to make a definite decision to live amongst the people you're seeking to reach. Now, of course, for Jesus, it was the result of obedience to his Father. But that should be true of us too. Tomorrow I'll be talking a little bit about the importance of knowing your call from God. And what keeps you actually in some cross-cultural situations that are quite hard and difficult is that knowledge that God has spoken and that God has called you um, to that particular place. So our aim should be both identification with and residence amongst the lost that we are seeking to reach. And so Jesus was born and grew up in a ministry context in which he didn't fully belong. And we have to acknowledge that when we go into another culture, that's not where we fully belong because that's not our culture. But we need to deliberately choose that and focus on that. Second thing is that there was, um, and I don't know whether you've ever realised this, that there was a long period of preparation before Jesus' active ministry. There were three decades where he was exposed to the culture and the worldview uh, of the people amongst whom he was living. He lived and worked amongst uh, working class Jewish people, absorbing their culture, learning to understand them both intellectually and also experientially, reflecting upon their lives, identifying with them in their struggles. They say, well, Mike, I don't have 30 years to prepare. And I fully understand that because uh, age, our families, our life situation, funding, uh, all kinds of things can conspire uh, against us. But nevertheless, I think it's important to realise that actually being amongst people for a good period of time and learning their culture 
and their language is very vital. In fact, it's one of the things that we've tended to teach a lot in New Frontiers in, in these last few years is the importance actually of when you go to a new culture just to give yourself actually to language and to making friendships and immersing yourself in the culture before you try and do any kind of ministry. Because one's seen time and time again how people who go and get straight into ministry never really grasp the language or really get a handle on the culture because they're so caught up in trying to plant the church or win people or that sort of thing. So that's very important. Paul Ward says, long-term immersion in the right place and with a high degree of focus can be a powerful tool to help us function more and more as insiders ministering from within and less and less as friendly but foreign faces at the window to whom so many nuances of local culture and socio-politics are opaque and confusing. So for Jesus, those 30 years provided a fully rounded kind of cultural learning experience that was both academic, practical, theoretical and experiential. Now we may not have those 30 years, but preparation for ministry, I would want to line, cannot be rushed. And certainly in the modern world, we can take advantage of some of the things that the, mo- the modern world gives to us. Things like the internet, web pages, multimedia tools, where we can learn actually about people's culture and people's language. Uh, the experience that we can tap into now of those that have gone before us. And that's one of the great things that uh, we're able to do now. And that's one of the things I love to do, actually, is try and put people in touch with each other, uh, those that have been working in a culture or a background, so that you can learn from each other. There's nothing more better than actually learning, as we say in the English phrase, from the horse's mouth. You know, actually where someone's actually lived it, been there, experienced it. And uh, I noticed at the lunchtime uh, that folks were asking Rob and uh, Elizabeth uh, about their experience in China and uh, they were telling some of the exciting stories what happened and then one brave soul said and what did you do wrong? <laughs> and uh, they had to think but then they started coming out with some illustrations. Well that's really helpful because if you can learn where somebody went wrong and made a mistake that really helps you doesn't it um, on things so that's very important to be able to do that. Um, friendship these days with uh, with people from that culture that are living in our own country um, Cambridge is a lovely place where we live because we have such an international uh, set of people within the city that you can usually find someone from somewhere from all over the world. And I was talking to Andy Moyle. He was just telling me they've just put another, because every time they have new nationalities, they put a new flag up in the church. And uh, they've just put a new one up. And they now have 27 different nationalities um, within the church. And so one of the things, again, in terms of preparation is just spending time with those kind of people, uh, getting to know them. And we're fortunate, again, we have a, you know, a fairly, well, not a large, but we have a Muslim community within the city. And so folks are going to work overseas. We try and encourage them, go and spend some time uh, with these people. With uh, We've got a particular road, ethnic road, within Cambridge called Mill Road. And it's got all kinds of ethnic um, food shops and restaurants and uh, there's a great cafe there. If you want to have some Islamic contact, then you just go to the cafe and sit down and, and talk and so forth. It's really great. That's how you learn. That's preparation. It's really important in that way. Insights into anthropology and cultural studies now you can pick up all over the place. They're all helpful. So good preparation and not rushing that preparation, I think, is very important if you're going to work in cross-cultural ministry. And then can I say the third thing, I think, is God's providence over his life setting. 
David Bosch, who's a great theologian and history of mission, says of Luke's view of Jesus uh, and his ministry that Jesus spent his time breaking down barriers between Jewish people and bringing reconciliation, and particularly demonstrating in Luke's gospel the inclusivity of God, particularly with the marginalised. And uh, Bosch reflects on the fact that he was born under dubious family circumstances, that as a baby he became a refugee in Egypt, and uh, although we don't know the exact time, of course, that he probably lost his father at an early age before he began his ministry. And Bosch postures that these experiences actually allowed him to identify with the outcast and with the poor and the unloved, and that they were important elements that shaped his own worldview and ministry practice, but also gave him an emotional sense of belonging to those whom he ministered. I wonder if you ever thought about the fact that Jesus followed his father and became a carpenter. Now you might think that being a carpenter, <laughs> I won't say for 30 years because he was obviously a bit older when he started, but for all those years as a carpenter, was that really good preparation uh, for his three-year ministry? Later in his ministry, uh, as we look through the Gospels, there's no stories or parables about carpentry or manufacturing. Have you noticed that? But there are many stories from the world of agriculture, hard workers, domestic and family life, lots of illustrations of those kind of things. But actually, in the days in which Jesus lived, a carpenter was very much part of the service industry. And carpenters usually carried on their trade in urban or semi-urban settings. And uh, therefore, a carpenter was often close uh, to the heart of the community where the centre of action was. And in that trade, he would have met and associated with people from all kinds of different backgrounds, so that he was perfectly positioned to hear all the latest happenings, stories of events and incidents, even gossips and and rumour, and to learn from a wide range of people's life issues and situations. And from that, he could build up a store of stories, second-hand accounts, anecdotes, worldly wisdom that was rooted in everyday life. Actually, if you think about it, it was a great way to be. And I just want to encourage you with that, that all your lives, wherever you've grown up, whatever your background, whatever your jobs have been, the providence of God has prepared you for where you're going. You may not think that yet, because it might only come out later, but actually in the providence of God, every part of your life has been important to him. Uh, Just give one illustration from my own life, just kind of in, in ministry that my mother died um, after an eight-year battle of uh, cancer, uh, breast cancer. And that was a, I was very close to my mother, and she died just a day before my 20th birthday. And that was really hard for me, and I had to find God's comfort in that. And uh, she was a believer, so there was obviously hope and that sort of thing. But it was a very difficult time for me. But when I went into full-time ministry, the first pastoral issue I had to deal with was a young mother who had just given birth to twins, and who was dying of the disintegration of her spine through cancer. And I spent a lot of time by her bedside with the family and with that sort of thing. And you know how Corinthians says that we are able to comfort others with the comfort that God has given to us. And uh, I saw in that the providence of God. I wouldn't have chosen that experience with mum. I would much rather, sorry much rather she's around today and I see my kids and grandkids that sort of thing, would have loved that but that was the purpose of God and in providence, God's providence uh, I'm able to use that now 
I didn't see that. But now I've, I've sat at the bedsides of, you know, I can't remember how many people, you know, been able to minister God's love to them because of that experience. I just want to encourage you that Jesus, 20, 30 years as a carpenter, it's not wasted. He didn't just come to give his life. He did come to give his life as a ransom for money. But all that time was God preparing him so that he could communicate the love of God in words and deeds to the people. And whatever your background that you've come from, God in his providence has put things in your life and experiences that will help you when you go to church plant because he knows what's up ahead much better than than we do. Next is our, our learning must be experiential. It's one thing to read about social issues and deprivation and quite another to experience them firsthand. There's no substitute for taking time to immerse oneself in the living, breathing, hurting society which our target people call home. So we need to immerse ourselves in local culture and learn from the local culture. Interaction that gains a good grasp of local issues and problems. Uh, And in that we can begin to develop a range of illustrations, parables, everyday life stories uh, with people. Fifthly, we see in Jesus an ability to understand and empathise with all in society. I love when you look at Jesus' life that there seems to be no distinction when he deals with people, whether it's race, whether it's social status, whether it's gender. He seems to deal with all those issues of status and social barriers with a care and a sensitivity. And yet at the same time, he knew when to challenge the status quo. He knew when to be accommodating to the existing culture. And just think of all the different kinds of people that he related to. The rich young ruler, the tax collectors, uh, Matthew and Zacchaeus. Uh, Think of that family that he was really fond of, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I love that bit where it says when Lazarus dies, you know, and uh, the people said, look look how much he loved him. You know, Jesus knew real friendship uh, with, with families. Children loved to be with him. You know, when they try to get the children away, they said, no, 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 <laughs> let them come. And, you know, children don't go to people that aren't smiley. Have you ever noticed that? You know, people aren't smiley, the kids don't like, they keep away from people like that. But, you know, when someone's warm and welcoming and fun-loving, and they love to be with Jesus. What about the outcasts, the, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the marginalised, the blind and the deaf and the lame? Seem Jesus embraced them all. What a model for us, you know, because sometimes we're honest, we find some people harder than others, don't we? Do you find that true? Uh, even even our, our situations now, there's some people that we get on well with, there are others that have to really work at this one. <laughs> and it's even more uh, amplified when we uh, actually go uh, overseas. Nicodemus, a senior politician, centurion, symbol of the occupying Roman authorities. Jesus seems to be able to deal with all of them. And yet he had a powerful undermining of established social norms too. So he was able to sit down with the woman at the well, something that he just wouldn't do in his culture, showing to that woman genuine concern and directness and countercultural courage. They were surprised, the disciples, when they came back and found him talking to a woman and a Samaritan at that. But he was there because that's what it needed to bring God's message of love, the washing of the disciples' feet. When nobody else would, Jesus would take that lowly uh, kind of service. Jesus understood the socio-political, racial and religious milieu of the first century Palestine. Although he spoke frequently of the kingdom of God, you'll notice if you read through the Gospels, he was careful to avoid political and indirectly political themes in his ministry. Even last night with Steph. Do you remember that Steph remarked on that? That Jesus, you know, he was a king, 
but he chose the route of the cross, which was the way to glory. And they did try and make him king at one point, but Jesus kept away. Even though he was the king, he kept away from that. It's a great book, if you've never read it, called Jesus and Politics um, by a guy called Alan Storkey, who is the husband of Elaine Storkey. He's very well known in England. She's the president of Tear Fund and also a very well-known philosopher and speaker. Alan's her husband, who's equally as <laughs> erudite as she is. And uh, it just shows all the political situation when Jesus was around in the Gospels and his relation to, to those different, uh, different people. So I think one of the things that we see in Jesus was that he obviously had a deep understanding of the society in which he lived. And I believe that... Uh, you know, that we need to learn the same too when we're in different situations. We need to be aware of what is happening in society. And uh, we need to learn to function in the midst of our host society by learning interpersonal uh, protocol, uh, knowing what is the right thing to do. Um, I've, I've had to learn that as I travel around the world. There's certain things you can do, certain things you can't do. There's certain cultures where you can talk to women, others where you dare not talk to women unless there's a man present as well. You have to learn those kind of protocols in order to be accepted. Awareness of the current issues, uh, the broader atmosphere of society. And then the last two things, very quickly, we can learn from the way he taught and communicated. Um, his message, as Steph was last night, was uh, simple in one way and yet at the same time was complex and challenging as he outlined God's plan for mankind. But just think of the different variety of methods that Jesus used to convey uh, what the message was that he was bringing from God. It's firstly what I call proclamation style. Uh, things like the Sermon on the Mount, where the people sat down and he just taught them. Or you see him at the lakeside where he gets in the boat and he teaches them as he sits in the boat and they're all gathered on the shore. So one way to communicate the gospel is through proclamation. But then there was also the formal setting of the synagogue. Um, in Luke 4 it tells us he's taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So that kind of more formal setting uh, he was communicating. And then there was dialogue, what we might call the question and answer format. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Why don't your disciples fast? Uh, when is the kingdom of God coming? And so there are times when he taught from question and answer, uh, questions that people raised with him. Uh, there were times when individual inquirers came to him, like the rich young ruler, um, and he dealt with them on their one-to-one -one basis, sometimes with friendly affirmation, sometimes with a robust challenge to repentance uh, and action. And then there were also times on the back of uh, specific situations or events uh, you think of the in Mark uh, 2 with the healing of the paralytic and on the back of that he teaches about forgiveness which is easier to say um, and then you've got the incident of Pilate mixing the blood of Galileans and the Tower of Siloam things that were actually happening in, in his day that he took up and taught from them and then of course especially with Jesus in the Gospels we see discipleship uh, how, do, would many of you know the book by Mike Breen Building a Discipling Culture. Do you know that book? Uh, Mike in that says, people learn best through the dynamic of interplay of classroom lecture, apprenticeship, and immersion. Classroom learning is when information, processes, and facts are taught from teacher to student in the classical uh, uh, lecture setting. Apprenticeship is when someone learns a certain set of skills, 
by apprenticing himself or herself to someone who already has learned the skills. And then immersion is when someone is put into an environment set in our culture and learns by intuitively picking up what he or she sees and experiences. And of course that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. And so I just give those by way of illustration because it's very important when we're trying to reach another cancer to find the ways in. There will be different levels of how we communicate and we must seek the Holy Spirit to help us uh, within that. One of the things I did many years ago when I was uh, used to teach on healing in seminars, um, I once did a study of the healings of Peter as compared with the healings of Jesus. It's a good little test to do sometimes, and, and you'll, you'll find that if you go through all the different situations that Peter does exactly how Jesus did. It's quite fascinating to see that. So Jesus did it this way, Peter did it this way. He'd obviously learnt from that discipleship to do it like Jesus did, which is no doubt why they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They recognised that there was power in the way Jesus prayed. So, Lord, teach us. And that's what discipleship is all about. And uh, in our region of people, we need to disciple people well. Jesus knew the learning style of his listeners. He was willing to adapt his presentation to suit them, taking into account educational level and life experience. Jesus had taken time to discover how they learn, how they discuss, how they interact with new material. Very, very important. Most of the people, of course, in Jesus' day were oral learners, as it is still in the world today. Most are oral learners. But Jesus frequently used story and metaphor, agriculture, building, fishing, the lives of the rich. Some stories he made up himself, others came from daily life, but he taught the masses and focused on narrative and stories based on life experience. And yet, when it came to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he used more direct and pointed logic and reasoned argument. So again, if we're going to reach people, we need to be aware of people's learning style and uh, people's background. So for example, if... uh, if I was teaching uh, someone today from a Confucian background, not confused background, a Confucian background, one of the things that he, Confucius, say is that uh, you take what's immediately before you which is going to be beneficial for you. And some early missionaries uh, to China you know, found that people were converting. And the reason they were converting, although they didn't realise it, was because this was the best thing that was around at the time. And they couldn't understand, you know, two or three years later, why these people had totally thrown over Christianity and had taken up something else. Well, because they were steeped in Confucian language and philosophy. And so you just take what is the best thing for you at that moment. Now, if you go into that culture to reach it without understanding that, you'll find people responding to you, not because they've truly come to faith, but because this seems to be the best way to live at this moment of time for my life and for the benefits that it may give to me. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And that's what Jesus is is doing so wonderfully. He seems to understand all that very well. Paul Wood says, The parables are often described as earthly stories with spiritual meanings. That is to say, it seems Jesus took stories, rumours, and perhaps even elements of gossip that he had heard, together with conventional wisdom, located and anchored in the society of the day, and worked with it, weaving in spiritual content and baptising them into powerful illustrations of the message of the kingdom. The master teacher made use of ordinary life to render what is beyond man's understanding understandable to men and women. And perhaps one of our challenges today is to remember that uh, not only are there oral learners around who 
learned from story, it encapsulates things in story, but we're now moving very much more to an image-based culture where um, we learn through pictures and through images that contain that truth. And so there's a challenge to us when to look at the people that we're going to and seeking to reach and ask, what is the best way to communicate this gospel, as we'll see a bit tomorrow? Um, If I was going to Africa, then one of the ways that I would preach the gospel would be that Jesus is the victor over Satan and demonic forces. Why would I do that? Well, because that's where most of Africa live. Their lives are dominated by the unseen realm and by spiritual forces. And so I need to show that that's where Jesus is from. So in our own generation, if you're in a, if you're in a shame and honor culture, you've got to think about how on the cross and through what Jesus did, he dealt with shame and dishonor. If you come from a guilt culture, you've got to show how Jesus has dealt with our guilt and our sin and our punishment. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, if you come from a, a place where people have a very low view of themselves, uh, where they think that you know they are nothing. So you're working amongst the Dalits in India. Then one of the things you talk about is how God is their father and how they can become adopted sons and how they are valued in his sight. It's wonderful that the, the, the New Testament is so full of so many different pictures of salvation. And part of our cross-cultural communication to them is actually to make the right picture fit so that they can grasp it in their own language. And we have to work hard um, to do that. But it seemed that Jesus was able to do that. Okay, the last thing you've listened ever so well. Um, the whole life was for the purpose of being God's word to the people. So Jesus was that manifestation. Again, back to that John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's just that bottom line of realizing that when Jesus lived, he came to be that expression, that living expression of the word of God. And we're called to be the same. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, In the Messiah in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life. But those on their way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. This is a terrific responsibility. Is anyone competent to take it on? No, but at least we don't take God's word, water it down, and then take it to the streets to sell it cheap. We stand in Christ's presence when we speak. God looks us in the face, and we get what we say straight from God, and say it as honestly as we can. Isn't that what Jesus did? And that's what he calls us to do. So for some, when Jesus, he was a fragrance of life, to others he was a fragrance of death. And as we embody that word as well, through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, then that's what people will see. And to some it will be life, and to others it will be death. So Jesus is a great example of what it means to be a cross-cultural servant. I'm sure there's much more you can pick out from his life, but they're just one or two little things. You done very well. We've got five minutes if you want to ask any questions on things I've said. Yes, one, good. Sure. Is there a way of 
Yes, uh, I mean the thing, uh, uh, certainly you know, if we go back to Jesus' culture, um, because they were an oral culture, they remember things much more and things were encapsulated in stories. When we talk about an oral culture, we don't mean that people are just illiterate. We mean it's the way that they actually learn and hold on to that learning. So there are many oral learners in the West. Um, one of the pastors I know in Bermondsey in South London, for instance, David, uh, he's an oral learner. So everything he does, he, he kind of remembers in stories, stories from life or so principles of scripture and stuff, he remembers it in that way. That's the way he, he learns. So yeah, if you're in a, a literate culture, um, it by all means use the scripture. And uh, we've got to get the word of God into people. That's, that's how we come by faith, by the, the word of truth. But we have to find the way that is right for those those people. And so in some cultures, even today, they they people will gather around, maybe there's just one that's literate here, read the word, and they all memorize it. <laughs> Still today, they'll hide that word in their heart in that way. So we've got to get the scripture there. But where we can get the word out into people's language if they are literate. And so people like Wycliffe Bible translators, very often they're going to cultures that have no written language and uh, so they're working with them to actually make a language and write it down and, and then produce the scriptures. So it's great to have the scriptures in your hands. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but sometimes when we're trying to communicate where people are, oral learners, then uh, pictures and things and stories are very important. Very interesting, um, uh, a little thing happened just a little while ago where they actually in some African countries were teaching doctrine just by telling Bible stories and portions of scripture in that way. And uh, they compared those that were learning in that way with a group of students at Fuller Theological Seminary in the United States. And they found that the guys that had been learning just through stories had a greater grasp of doctrine and understanding of theology than the guys that had been at Fuller. which is interesting. So it's just, you know, it's just the way people learn and their background, and you have to find find that through. Yes, you were quoting Confucius before, uh, and uh, about making the best use of what you have. Yes. So we have uh, uh, some Vietnamese families we are uh, serving, and we have had some of two of them become Christians. At least we think so. Don't let me put you off. Very good. Yes. Yeah, I think it's how you how you preach the gospel to them, how you disciple them. You've got to pro. The thing I, I gave as an illustration was just that if you're going into culture, you just have to be aware of that. It doesn't mean that those people in front of you necessarily will, they'll all take that, because we treat them as individuals again, that they'll all go that way. But having that in your mind will mean that you'll probe them a little bit more in terms of their understanding, uh, maybe what the cost is to, to follow Christ. Um, certainly in that, because they're often looking for what benefit is this going to bring to me. And so in your preaching of the gospel, you've got to do a Steph Liston from last night and say, actually, there is a cost to following Christ. Jesus made that very plain. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. And so preaching, the, making sure that you emphasize those things will then help those people to recognize that's what it means. And so if they commit with that fully in their mind, then they're liable to stay the course rather than they've just come for the benefits that you know they feel it will give them at this, this moment, really. But it's finding the way through. You've got to find a way through to 
deconstruct that. Um, Tim Keller has just written an excellent new book um, on preaching, and uh, he's got two whole chapters in there on how do you preach to this modern culture, and uh, talks about the sort of thing about deconstruction that you're talking about, and gives some very helpful, actually, um, uh, illustrations and principles uh, for approaching that in different cultures. Oh, right. <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> yes. Right. You can't go go into that uh, society because they're always watching each other. Yes. Watch your name. Yes. 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 Yeah, it's it's finding the way to um, break through, isn't it? Um, I had an interesting story actually from one of the ladies in Steph's church um, last time that um, she actually works with a, a thing in um, the UK which is Christians um, Against Poverty and and they visit people and help them with sort out their finances and that sort of thing and he was visiting, uh, she was visiting um, again Muslim lady actually from Somalia and same thing, terrific pressure from the community um, so that you know they're not allowed to talk out outside <laughs> and, uh, and she offered to pray for the lady and the lady said no and so she said, oh, that's, that's, that's okay, okay, I, I won't pray. But she then went back to visit her a second time, and uh, she just shown friendship, started to help this lady to sort, the, sort through the problems and issues. And uh, she said to the lady again, um, you know, can I pray with you before I go? Uh, and she said, no, but stay there. And so she stayed, <laughs> she stayed. This lady went off, and she's gone for about five minutes, and then she came in again with seven other, I think it was seven other Muslim ladies. And uh, she sat them all down around the room. Now you can pray. And uh, so sometimes it's, it's, you know, your constant friendship, your shine of kindness. It's asking the Lord for a breakthrough. And particularly if you can break through with a family, a family unit together, um, then that makes it much easier. And then just one coming on their own. And so sometimes, even when in, in some um, cultures, even when someone comes to faith as an individual, they kind of live for a while as a kind of secret disciple because the issues are too strong. In Yemen, for instance, where some of our folks used to work, to, to announce that you've become a Christian, that was it. You'd be in jail, you'd be killed or whatever. Um, but actually we had groups of secret believers all over Yemen. <laughs> um, and they used to meet together secretly. But actually the groups never knew where each other were. Uh, they were still at that stage as well, so that you had some groups, you know, one group meeting here, one group meeting there, but they never knew the existence of the other. But the missionaries knew where they were. And so they would teach them and disciple them, and then they would disciple each other, and they would go on like that. So it's, you, you have to seek God to find the ways through. But certainly trying to bring a whole family unit through um, is very vital. And when you think of the Philippian jailer, which is a nice illustration in Scripture, um, that you know he comes to faith and all his household, um, and you know it wasn't a nominal. Okay, you all, you know, I'm the boss. <laughs> you all come on board now with me. No, I think it was a genuine come to faith, and where you can do it with a, a group 
it's much stronger um, to try and work that way. But sometimes you have to wait a while to get that um, through, really. Yeah, good question. God bless you in that. It's not an easy, an easy work. Yeah, good. Sorry, yes, Kirsten. Yeah, um, well, I would I would be very au fait for that. I, I would be very positive. I think it's great to be able to build a culture in which you have multi uh, yeah. multi sort of backgrounds. Uh, it's much harder to do, um, but I think it's a great expression of what Jesus came to do to make us one new man in Christ. And uh, and it, it takes a lot harder work um, to be able to do that. And when you have your church life, you have to. Um, be aware of those cultural issues that will come up. Uh, as illustrating somebody, um, we we had a pastor from um, Zimbabwe, and uh, he was a great guy. He, we had him preaching, and he was like a father to our Africans. He was really great. But his visa ran out, and he had to go back to Zimbabwe. And his wife um, had a visa, and her visa didn't run out. So she was able to stay, but he had to go back to kind of review. And the review process took almost a year. And uh, during that year, you know, they would say to the wife, you know, uh, you know, when's when's Ben coming back? You know, are, are you okay? And from her culture, she read that as, what are you still doing here in the UK when back is back back in Zimbabwe? I mean, that's what they weren't meaning that, but that's how culturally she read it through her glasses. She took it to mean that. Oh, you're saying that I shouldn't be here. I should be back with <laughs> back with Ben. And because we had to deal with that, you know, and try and help her to understand that that's not what people were saying, um, that sort of thing. So when you've got a multicultural church where you've got all different nationalities together with all their different backgrounds and baggage, it's much harder to, to build that. Um, but it's great when you get there. Um, uh, but it does take a lot, a lot of hard work. And I think that's increasing now because of the migration, uh, even before the Syrian thing. Um, uh, this century, uh, and in fact the part of the last century, um, showed that migration was happening on a larger and larger scale. So uh, right across the world now, um, you've got you've got mixtures of people. Um, so yes, you're right in that sense. There there are still places where <laughs> you can say, "Well, I'm going to this culture," but in more places, and I think that will just increase with travel and all the other things. You're going to find that. So yeah, we've got to find ways through that. But I think if you take the if you try and model on Jesus again and, and say, "Well, look, these, this is how Jesus lived." This is how he demonstrated the love of the Father. And as I said, whatever the culture is, learning to accept and see the good things and reject the bad things. <laughs> and obviously you find a new way with the kingdom of God, really, because whatever our cultural background is, um, they're good and bad in all things. So it's only the kingdom 
uh, that we can come to on, on values. But even that has to be worked out. So um, finding how you uh, contextualize those principles, which we'll talk about tomorrow, is, is a very important issue. Um, Terry, um, who's led our movement, Terry's always been good uh, right from the very beginning of saying, look, these are biblical principles. Now work it out in your culture. So biblical principle, just illustration, would be the breaking of bread. It's very important for us as believers to constantly come back and remember what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. But how do you do that? There's no one line in scripture of how you should do it. (laughs) And there isn't a church line of how you do it. So some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it in their Sunday service. Some churches do it in their small groups. Um, some some use bread and wine. Some use bread and juice because they don't like the alcohol and the connotations that might have for you know alcoholics that are amongst them. So there's all different ways of working it out. But the principle is remember Jesus and remember him regularly. And 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 so so many principles like that have to be worked out in your context. And uh, you have to apply that and you have to find your way through. And if you're going to be multicultural, again, you've got to find your way through. Like I talked about, like with the dancing, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, you've got Ukrainians and Russians and Africans and, yeah. <laughs> well, we've done that a little bit uh, with our, our mixture. Um, so we had, uh, within our music, you know, we, when we've had a strong Nigerian contingent, they've often led our worship and we've had kind of Nigerian-style worship and we've learned to sing in Nigerian as well. Um, <laughs> So, and because their style is totally different, you know, so, so you have to work it out on the ground. But uh, yeah, I think more and more there will be multicultural kind of things, really. Yeah, um, I think this is related to the question as well. So, what, like, in language, so in our council, we have people coming with all different languages, so we can't always learn 50 languages. Yes. Yes. But at the same time, we want them to we want to be able to communicate to them. Yes. Do it. We don't want to wait three years to learn the language. Yes. Um, and we find we we pray for people that know their language, know Swedish, to be able to minister to them. But yeah, just a general question: Do you have experience of this? What well, what would be some practical steps to take to kind of lay a, a, a foundation? Yeah, <laughs> you've got to. Um, I think you you do you do have to find folk who can speak the language. A uh, good illustration will be our church in Newcastle, um, where they have a very large uh, Iranian contingent uh, who are Farsi speakers, and so they combine those together in the sense that um, the the Iranians come into their main church meeting and they're beginning to learn English and be part and able to worship but they also have separate meetings where they only speak Farsi uh, as well so that's the way they're doing it at the moment because it, as you say it takes time uh, to get everybody so they try and, uh, they're trying to integrate but at the same time recognising yes there is a need here, they do need to hear in their own language and so they've found Farsi speakers who can do that for them um, and i it's a bit controversial, but I, I think you know. Even using, um, I know when I first started um, speaking in the Ukraine, um, one of my first uh, occasions, um, that the church actually hired me a translator, an outside translator, to actually come with me and travel with me, 
and um, so it was a little difficult working because obviously uh, many translators, you know, secular translators are not used to our biblical uh, kind of ways and things. So it was much harder work, but nevertheless, it it communicated quite a quite a bit. And uh, so I think sometimes, you know, even you know somebody from outside who's kind of sympathetic but uh, can actually. Uh, you know, bring the language is helpful, but I think it's a stage you just have to go through. 